Good afternoon and welcome to this Thursday edition of Bill Allen's Facebook Studies. We are going through the Daily Bible edited by Effligard Smith. And I appreciate you being with us. On Tuesday, we were uh, live from Bill's front bedroom at our house because Joyce and I have uh, been fighting off the crud, a.k.a. the flu. And uh, she was diagnosed with it on last Sunday. Uh, I have uh, had some symptoms related to that since about last, uh, no, actually late Thursday night on Thanksgiving weekend and worse on Friday, but uh, overall, not quite as bad, And uh, but we have both been struggling with it. We appreciate all the nice, kind notes and prayers uh, for us. I am on the mend. Uh, Joyce is trying to get on the mend. She's still feeling pretty badly, so we appreciate everybody uh, thinking of us and um, being able to uh, know that there are folks that care about you and pray for you when you have special concerns, and that's been us this week, so thank you. Uh, where we left off was at the end of the Jerusalem conference. As we are going through the book of Acts, uh, we we get to that great start of the church in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, and the early days and years of the church and the chapters that follow with uh, the, the church growing every day and the persecution beginning to mount as well. Uh, and we see where um, Stephen, the first Christian martyr in uh, Acts chapter 6 and 7, his wonderful sermon, and then uh, his death by stoning, uh, which was um, approved by uh, Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. And, um, and then later on in uh, Acts chapter 12, the uh, first apostle uh, killed for the faith, and that's James, the brother of John. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes one of the leaders in the church at Jerusalem. And when they meet together to talk about the Gentiles, because in Acts 10, the first non-Jew, Cornelius and his family, are converted and are baptized into Christ. Um, and that, that brings about a great uh, renewal of evangelism. The uh, church at Antioch of Syria, northwest of Jerusalem, in the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, they take that seriously and they begin reaching out to uh, lots of non-Jews as well as Jews. Barnabas goes there. So he takes Saul of Tarsus, who had been converted on the road, uh, saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and was told to go into the city. And in the city, Ananias, a faithful Christian disciple, uh, came to him and said, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away. And uh, and so when Barnabas is in Antioch and he sees all the excitement going on there, he says, I know just the guy that needs to be a part of this, and that's Saul of Tarsus. And so while they are there, the uh, Holy Spirit says, uh, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul because I have a special mission for them. And they're sent through modern-day Turkey and are uh, building up uh, churches. They uh, convert a lot of people. They start a lot of churches. And then as they return back to Antioch, they go back east. Uh, they go back through all those churches, and they appoint elders in each of the cities uh, where they had started a church. Uh, that central part of modern-day Turkey up in the north is uh, uh, probably what Paul writes the letter of Galatians to, and we're going to look at that in just a few moments. 
<clears throat> and uh, and then they're back in uh, Antioch, and they have a big mission Sunday, and they gather the church together, and they tell all the great stories of what God has done on those that those first um, that first mission trip of Paul's in Acts 13 and 14. During that time, John Mark leaves them and comes back to Jerusalem. He's a relative of Barnabas, probably a nephew or a cousin, and. Um, and Saul begins to go by the name Paul. That could be related to a man who uh, had a seemed to be a very uh, uh, positive experience with Paul and Barnabas. One of the officials named Paulus, but we don't know exactly. But Paul begins to be known as that, the Apostle Paul. And so they go back to Antioch, and then they are called upon to go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and elders there to talk about what do we do with these Gentiles. They're coming into the church. We're not asking them to obey the law of Moses. We're not asking the males to be circumcised. Is that right? And uh, and even though there were some Jewish uh, Christian leaders who said, yeah, we need to have them keep the law of Moses, Paul and Barnabas, Peter, uh, the others uh, would not abide by that because of everything that had happened and where God was leading them, and James, that half-brother of the Lord, uh, uh, took the lead and said, here's what we should do. And so they write a letter, and they encourage the Gentile Christians to do a few, three or four things to appease their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, but they are not called upon to uh, accept circumcision or the law of Moses. A huge step after 2,000 years of circumcision from the time of Abraham after about 1,500 years of the law of Moses. Uh, and so it is a new day. What Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah 31, that new covenant uh, is now in effect. Uh, so it's a, great, it's a great time. And then that brings us to where we kind of left off in the last part of Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas say, let's go back and go visit those churches again that we established, and uh, that sounds like a good idea. Barnabas, though, wants to take John Mark again, and Paul says no. And it causes such a serious disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they go separate ways. Barnabas goes one way and takes Mark, and Paul goes a different way and takes Silas. Silas was one of those who had come down from Jerusalem after the Jerusalem conference and had become such an important part of of the church there at Antioch that they decided that that's who needed to go with Paul. And so Paul and Silas uh, strike out and they find this young man by the name of Timothy. His mother was a Jewish woman and a believer, a Christian. His father was Greek. He was not a Jew. And so that meant that he, uh, he said, nope, no boy of mine is going to be circumcised. So Timothy was not circumcised. And uh, But he wants to go with Paul and Silas on the mission journey, and everyone speaks highly of him. He becomes Paul's son in the gospel, as he calls him. And, uh, and, and so Paul goes ahead and tells him to get circumcised, not in order to save his soul, but in order to have uh, a positive influence on the Jews where they will be. They're going to be going in and out of the synagogue. They're going to be going in and out of Jewish company. They're going to be experiencing a lot of that. And to remove all doubt and all question and to go the second mile, uh, Timothy is circumcised, which is amazing. When we get to Galatians in a moment, uh, Titus uh, is one who Paul takes with him to that conference in Jerusalem, if it's the same one. And he is not circumcised, and it becomes a matter of faith and not just a matter of uh, influence. Uh, 
Uh, so it's a it's a very amazing, interesting way of, of dealing with conflict in both of those situations. And so they're getting ready to go, and they get to the far western part of modern-day Turkey, and, and yet they're not able to go where they want to go. And the Holy Spirit keeps defeating them, and finally Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia in modern-day uh, Greece. Uh, the northern half of Greece is called Macedonia, the Roman province, the southern half, Achaia. And Paul sees a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And they realize, well, the Holy Spirit is telling us to leave the continent of Asia and go across into Europe. And that's exactly what they do. They go into uh, what we would call Greece, uh, the northern part, and they find a city, a very important Roman colony called Philippi. It was founded by Alexander the Great uh, three or four hundred years before this time. And it is... Um, it is uh, a very important city in the Roman Empire, named by Alexander after his father, Philip of Macedon. And so they go to Philippi, and they find a place that looks like it's a place of prayer. And sure enough, some women come uh, to pray there, and one of them is Lydia. And she and her family are baptized, and she says, look, if you're going to uh, be around here, if you found me worthy, then I want you to stay. I'm, no need to go to the inn. No need to stay in the courtyard. You're staying with me. Uh, this wonderful, godly Christian woman, and it begins a beautiful relationship between Paul and the church at Philippi that now is probably meeting at her home uh, during these early days. Well, while Paul and Silas and Timothy are going around and evangelizing and ministering, uh, they heal this woman who has uh, 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 had a spirit, an evil spirit inside of her, which caused her to be able to to be somewhat prophetic, and she had a couple of slave owners that uh, were abusing her for money and her gift, and Paul calls the uh, the spirit out of her, and they realize their way of making money is gone, and so they stir up a lot of trouble uh, for Paul, and they have Paul and Silas arrested in Acts chapter 16 and, and beaten and flogged, even though they're Roman citizens, which I'm sure they didn't know at the time. Uh, if they did, they messed up big time. And, uh, and so that night, Paul and Silas are in the jail in Acts 16, and they're praying and singing. And the other prisoners are uh, listening. The jailer is listening. And about midnight, an uh, earthquake comes. All of the doors are opened. All of the locks are unlocked. And, but none of the prisoners escape. And when the jailer sees what's going on, he thinks they're all going to run, and he's going to face a worse fate than suicide. And so he tries to kill himself, but Paul stops him. And he throws himself at their feet and says, what must I do to be saved? That man knew, even though he was the jailer and they were the inmates, they were the ones who were actually free. And he goes to them and he says, how do I get what you have? And they tell him, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your whole family. And the scripture doesn't stop there, though. It says they began and continued to teach him about Jesus. And he took them home and washed their wounds and then uh, he and all of his family were baptized. And it was a wonderful moment of rejoicing that they had come to know Christ. They go back to the jail. And the next morning, the, uh, the authorities are a little bit nervous because they have, they have put uh, Paul and Silas in jail and had them flogged, even though they were Roman citizens without a fair trial. And that was strictly forbidden in Rome. And... And so they say, look, you guys, we're sorry. Why don't you go ahead and leave? And Paul says, no. 
He says, we, we, were, we were suffering uh, without, in unjust causes, and so you need to lead us out. This community needs to know that what you did was wrong and that we're innocent, and that's exactly what they do. And after a while, Paul and Silas and Timothy leave Philippi, and they go from there to Thessalonica, also in modern-day Greece, still up in the northern part in Macedonia. And in Thessalonica, they are preaching, apparently, to Jews and Gentiles. They stay for a few Sabbaths in the synagogue, but apparently they stay for a longer time and, and reach a lot of Gentiles as well. But the Jews uh, begin to stir up trouble for them, and um, <clears throat> they hire some men who are uh, basically uh, some uh, mercenary kind of guys that will do anything for a buck, and they stir up trouble, the Jews do, against Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they are forced uh, to leave. And the church at Thessalonica begins, but it begins with great uh, uh, persecution. And so um, the, the books we're going to read in just a moment, Galatians and First and Second Thessalonians, acknowledge that, that persecution. They go from there to Berea, uh, still in the northern part. Bereans are more noble, it says, in the traditional uh, translation than those who were in Thessalonica because they searched the word of God every day to see if what Paul was saying was so. And so they find a great uh, uh, following in Berea. And there are people there who want to study the scriptures, study their Bible. And when they do, they realize that what Paul and Silas and Timothy are preaching is the truth. And so, um, and so they believe. But the Jews in Thessalonica, it's not enough for them to run Paul and Silas and his group out of their city. They want to run him out of the neighboring city of Berea as well. And that's what they do. And so they take Paul and uh, they send him off to Athens in the southern part of Greece, uh, the, the district of Achaia. And Silas and Timothy stay there in Berea for a while. And while he was in Athens, there's that great sermon in Acts 17 where Paul goes and he goes through this, uh, this, this center of Roman and Greek worship. And he sees all these altars and all these idols everywhere. And he finally comes up with one that says, to the unknown God. And so he tells them, look, this is the one that I want to talk to you about. It's the one that you don't know about. And he's the one true and living God. And he preaches in the Areopagus, that great center of discussion and uh, learning. And he preaches the name uh, of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't quote Old Testament. Instead, he quotes a couple of the, of the uh, Greek philosophers because it's not like he's in the synagogue. When he was on his first mission journey in Acts 13, he had a sermon full of scripture from the Old Testament. But that was a different audience. This audience wouldn't care anything about the Old Testament, what the Jews call, what we call the Old Testament. Their scriptures, the prophets and the law that spoke of the coming of Christ. But he does talk to them about how God is the one true and living God, and he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And in him we live and move and have our very being, and he's right there close to us. Those are the kinds of things that Paul shares with those in Athens. From Athens, he goes to the city of Corinth, and also in the southern part of modern-day Greece, that region of Achaia. 
And uh, while he is there, uh, he meets a couple of Jews by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. And Aquila is a, they're tent makers, just like Paul was. And so he works with them for a while in Corinth. And then when Silas and Timothy come from Berea and rejoin him, he, uh, he stops making tents. He, he quits that part-time job, and he becomes uh, full-time in his mission work and preaching. And even though there's great persecution there, too, Jesus comes to Paul in a vision, and he says, Look, um, don't worry about it. I, you keep speaking. I have many people here. What a great moment for Paul to hear from the Lord Jesus just as he had heard from him on the road to Damascus, he hears from him here with a word of encouragement because it was a it was a hard time in First Corinthians two that we'll look at on Tuesday. Um, Paul says, "Hey, when I came to you, I was spent. Man, I was done. I was so I was worked over. Um, I was defeated." And that's because he's reflecting on all those things that had happened on this mission journey in Philippi, and in Berea, and in Thessalonica, uh, and in Athens, and now in Corinth. Um, and so uh, we understand what he exactly he uh, is talking uh, about. Um, and so from there, he, uh, 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 he, he goes on. Ultimately, he will go uh, back to Antioch of Syria and, uh, and tell them about all the things um, that he had done. He goes by Ephesus, but only briefly, and he says, Lord willing, I'll come back. But he does leave Priscilla and Aquila there, and a man by the name of Apollos comes, and uh, a very powerful preacher, but he doesn't know the whole story, doesn't know about um, about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, only the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila invite him over for coffee and cake and Tell him the way of the Lord more perfectly. And, and Apollos understands and he appreciates that and he goes on preaching and is a very powerful speaker, has a great influence in Corinth. Paul mentions him in his letters to Corinth and to the Corinthians. And uh, they send him on uh, to, uh, uh, he, he preaches for a while there uh, in Corinth and then goes on um, uh, to uh, uh, Ephesus as uh, well. And so um, all of this is going on. Uh, Paulus uh, comes to Ephesus and Aquila and Priscilla uh, have that experience with him. And then he goes on to Corinth from there. Uh, and Paul had already been there. And so then he's going to go back to, uh, in the middle of Acts 18, he's going to go back to Antioch and have another mission Sunday. And then he'll start his third mission journey where he'll spend a significant amount of time uh, in Ephesus. But before we go today, I want us to take a look at these first two, um, first three New Testament books because uh, they're written about this time. The book of Galatians could be the very first uh, book written in the new, of the New Testament, or it could have been First and Second Thessalonians. Some, again, we don't know exactly when these were written, but we know that those are written early, and uh, and it could very well be Galatians is written not long after that Jerusalem conference that we read about in, uh, in Acts chapter 15, and that makes sense to me, and that's how it shows up in the uh, chronological study uh, by uh, Dr. Smith. And so let's go for a moment to Galatians, and, uh, and then we'll take a quick run through 
um, uh, uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians as well. Because next week we have our work cut out for us. We'll be looking at 1st and 2nd Corinthians, which you've already begun reading if you're on track. And, uh, and then the book of Romans, which as you probably know, one of my favorite, favorite studies. Um, but first in Galatians, Paul writes to the churches in Galatia. Remember, these are the churches in the northern part of modern-day Turkey. It could very well be that some of these churches are also the recipients of the letters of the Apostle Peter that we call First and Second uh, Peter. One of the things he does, one of the things that sets Galatians apart is that Paul doesn't really commend the church at all in the in the beginning. You know, a lot of times he will say, I love and appreciate you, and I thank my God regularly for you. Here he gets right to it. And uh, starting in verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you have turned away from the gospel to something that is not the gospel. And the big deal in, in the Galatian churches probably stems from this uh, question that they had faced at the Jerusalem conference. And after those letters are written, Paul and Silas uh, go through those churches and they and they read them this letter and they talk to them about the gospel versus the law. But it seems like there's still some, some Jewish Christians that are there referred to as the Judaizers who are trying to force the new Gentile converts to uh, accept circumcision and observe the law. And Paul will not have it. And I'm sure he and Barnabas faced that when they went through there on that second, or he and Silas when they went through there on that second mission journey going until they finally reached um, uh, uh, the western part and went across to Europe. But he's sometime in, in here, uh, perhaps sometime during the second mission journey or maybe even before he sets out, he writes this letter to the Galatians, and he says, I can't believe you've given up on this gospel. In fact, he says, even if an angel from heaven were to come down and preach a gospel other than the one you have received, let them be accursed. That's how serious this is. It's about how we become uh, forgiven. Uh, do we do that by the keeping of law, any law, I think, or do we do that by faith in Christ? Of course, the specific issue that's at stake in Galatians is the law of Moses versus the gospel of Christ. Uh, but I think it could be said of any anyone who seeks to be justified by law-keeping. It simply cannot be done because if you're going to do that, then you have to keep it all perfectly. Because as Paul says, the law is meant to condemn. It's meant to identify who the lawbreakers are. But faith in Christ comes as an acceptance of the grace of God seen in the sacrifice of Christ. And then we do that response of faith, believing in Jesus, turning away from our sins and changing our lives. That's repenting, confessing that faith and being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Just like they were in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, just like uh, Cornelius was in Acts 10, just like Saul of Tarsus was in Acts 9, just like Lydia was and the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, all of those uh, uh, Samaritans that Philip converted in Acts chapter 8, the message is consistent. And so as Paul writes to them, he says, I just can't believe that you, you have turned your back on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And throughout the book of Galatians, for almost uh, three and a half chapters until we get to, actually four and a half chapters, until we get to the middle of chapter 5, Paul has this scathing rebuke of those who would seek to be justified 
by the keeping of law. At the beginning, uh, he tells his own story and his history. And in Galatians 2, he talks about that Jerusalem trip. It could be a different one, but I think it's too too similar to the one that's described in Acts 15 uh, to be a different conference. It could be, but he talks about taking Titus up to Jerusalem. And he and this is what I mentioned earlier. Titus was not circumcised. He was a Christian, but was uncircumcised. And Paul brought him with him because he wanted to make a statement and he wanted to hold fast to the gospel and say, look, if you go back to requiring circumcision and the keeping of the law, then you've given up on the gospel. Throughout Galatians, he offers one argument after another, including he asks them, when did you, when did you receive and how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you do that through the law of Moses or through faith in Christ? Uh, that rhetorical question. He has that interesting uh uh, discussion in uh, the middle of chapter 2 about uh, his conflict with Simon Peter. Peter was one, he was all about this uh, accepting of the Gentiles and not requiring the law. And then he says there were some who came from James, which again signifies the leading role that James, the brother of Jesus, had, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, but what he means is when some came from Jerusalem, and they could have been apostles, they could have been elders, other leaders from Jerusalem, but when they did, Peter was very shy about being around the Gentile Christians and affirming that message of faith, and it, it had such an effect that Barnabas was led astray, and Paul Paul looked at Peter and he says, I, I, uh, I confronted him to his face in the presence of them all because what he was doing was not right. It's a great act of love. And he's going to talk about confronting those who are fallen away in uh, chapter 6 of Galatians. And he's going to tell us when you do that, you do that humbly in a spirit of meekness uh, and love and with a desire to bring that person back around. Uh, throughout Galatians 3, it's just one argument after another, starting with you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In verse 1, he says, Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was crucified. And it was the way he portrayed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He speaks about Abraham. He speaks about the law. Uh, he says in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And that's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, that great verse that we looked at a good while back. Um, and he continues on speaking about Abraham and how Abraham's promises are fulfilled in those who are children of Abraham by faith, just as Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, we too believe and it's credited to us as righteousness. He speaks about that descendant of Abraham through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The seed, singular, not plural. A great statement about um, the inspiration and authority of Scripture. Paul would make a big case about not just a word, but about um, the number. Is it singular or plural? Paul says it's singular, and it's referring to one person, one descendant, Jesus Christ uh, himself. He says the law was our schoolmaster, our tutor, 
um, to bring us to Christ, to bring us to the time when it was right. And in Galatians 4, verse 4, he describes that time. He says, in the fullness of time, in the traditional translation, at just the right time, Jesus was born. Jesus came, born of a woman, born under the law. An amazing, amazing statement. At the end of chapter 3, he has this great passage starting in verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, have put on Christ. What a great statement about baptism in Galatians 3.27. And then verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When it comes to salvation, there's no rich or poor, white or black, male or female, Jew or Gentile. We're all saved the same way. And that is by faith in Jesus Christ. And so at the end, at the beginning of chapter 4, he says this, because we're children of God, we're also heirs. And that means that we call upon God, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, that great statement that Jesus used to describe his dear beloved father when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he died. That great statement that we'll read in Romans chapter 8, very similar to this verse in Galatians 4 verse 6, we call God Abba, Father. It's an incredible, incredible statement. Uh, he continues on. He draws an analogy between Hagar and Sarah, uh, the two mothers of Abraham's first two boys, Hagar, the slave woman, when Sarah couldn't conceive. Uh, Abraham had a son through Hagar, and it was Ishmael, but it was not the son of promise. And then Sarah had Isaac. And uh, Paul uh, uses that as an analogy to compare the old covenant and the new covenant. And then in chapter 5, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Very firm words he gives as he uh, closes this argument in chapter 5. And then he finally, when he gets to chapter 5, verse 13, he takes a, tur a turn. We'll see it similarly in Romans and Ephesians and other places. But for four and a half chapters, he has talked about how we are saved by grace through faith and not according to our law keeping. And then in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, look, don't use this freedom to indulge the flesh. Uh, you're called to serve. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Just as he does in Romans, he says, okay, now let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter how you live. You're to live lives of humility and love in service to others. The entire law, verse 14 of chapter 5, is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then the rest of chapter 5, he talks about living or walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And he has that great uh, comparison between the works or deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit at the end, uh, towards the end of chapter 5. <clears throat> Reading verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. 
I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, those sins God will not just wash over. He'll forgive them through the blood of Christ, but he calls on us to live a different way, to live not according to the deeds of the flesh, but according to the fruit of the Spirit. Even though our culture continues to look at sexual immorality and say it's okay, it's not okay. Even though our culture tries to redefine marriage, God has created us male and female, and he's called on us to take that marriage seriously and to let that be between one man and one woman for as long as we both shall live. Uh, these things that he talks about in, in these verses, he says, I can tell you, that uh, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So how should we live? Verse 22 of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and, and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. And that's a great statement. It follows up another verse that we skimmed over in Galatians 2, verse 20. Great song about it. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are crucified with Christ, and Paul says we have crucified the flesh and all of its desires. In chapter 6, he begins to wrap up, and he talks about someone who is overtaken in a sin, just like Peter was. And this is what he tells us. Those who are spiritual should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. He tells us to do that in humility and love, with a desire to restore them, not condemn them. Um, but, but still, as Ephesians 4 will say, we are to speak the truth in love. And that's exactly what Paul does. This great verse in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Um, Again, not a popular statement, but it's the inspired word of God. Uh, we don't live fleshly lives. We don't live selfish lives. We don't live to satisfy our desires or even live to do whatever makes us happy. We do what pleases the Lord. We do what will help others see that Jesus Christ is Lord and died for them. And then these two great verses in Galatians 6 verses 9 and 10 let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. It starts with each other, but it doesn't end there. We love our neighbor as ourselves, whether that neighbor sits across the pew from us or whether that neighbor is across the street from us living a very different kind of life than we would uh, hope that they would live. We can love them, but we do not affirm their practices and their lifestyle because we can't affirm sin. Jesus died. That's how seriously God takes sin. Jesus died to bring about forgiveness. 
And so we get to share that message and we get to live that faithful life. Not sinless, not perfect, but faithful. Paul writes in verse 11, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Paul used an amanuensis, a secretary. He would dictate the letters for whatever the reason. Some say it's because he had bad eyes. Um, that could very well be. But one of the things that we know is that uh, he used somebody to write down all of his letters, except for one, the short letter to Philemon, which I'm looking forward to talking to one day soon as well. Paul has these great statements throughout uh, Galatians in chapter 6, verse 16, verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. In Galatians 5, verse 6, he had put it this way. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith working through love. That's what Paul reminds us of. That's what he tells us to live by and how to live uh, throughout the book of Galatians. Well, I think our time is getting away from us. I think my voice is about to go as well. And so um, we're going to say First and Second Thessalonians for next Tuesday. And I realize that that will be a ways after you've read it, but that's okay. But we'll do a little summary of First and Second Thessalonians, and then we'll get into First and Second Corinthians. Uh, Paul writes out of his heart to both of those great churches, the church at Thessalonica uh, in the northern part of modern-day Greece and the church at Corinth in the southern part. He has some strong words to say for both, but some encouraging words, some wonderful words, and I'm looking forward to sharing those with you this coming Tuesday. God bless you, and I hope that you have a wonderful weekend.